Good morning. Good morning. All right, let me give you a little prep here for this morning while you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. At the end of our service time today, we're going to do two things. We're We're going to pray together concerning what we're about to learn from and observe in this text. We are also going to pray for our team that's headed to Mexico uh, later this week. And we've got about 50 plus people who are part of a trip this year to go down to uh, Guadalupe, Mexico, across the border from El Paso, near the Juarez area, to minister to uh, children who are part of Rancho 3M School and Orphanage there, outreach to that community. So, so very grateful for all of you who have made room to uh, either go on this trip or to go and help with some of the construction activity that we have going on, some of the ministry time, and just some of the finances that we've needed to make this trip possible. Uh, So thank you guys. If you don't want to pray for the team, that would be greatly appreciated. We're going to do that at the close of the service. We'll invite the team up to, to come up for prayer. So please be ready for that. All right, 1 Corinthians. If you're joining us, we are studying through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to benefit much from how God has inspired particular things to be talked about in this book. And as I mentioned the last couple of weeks, sometimes the Bible wants to talk about things that you and I don't want to talk about. And I can promise you today, for some of us here, I'm going to talk about something today that some of us wish we wouldn't talk about. So, (laughs) let's read here. You know, Eric quoted a little earlier in one of the the passages there of the richness of the verses that we've been spending some time in. That there is great encouragement in these passages. There is great identification. God has made promises to us. He has stated things that are true about us. So the first nine verses verses in 1 Corinthians. If you're just joining us, jumping in here, you, those are such rich, concentrated doses of needed material in our lives. And so if you haven't read those passages in a while, please go back and do that. And then suddenly Paul's going to take a bit of a sharp turn. So from the fact that we are, verse 9, called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, we enter these next few verses. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's it's been reported to me by, by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, and I follow Christ. Jump over into chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk. Not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And and even now, you're not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and, and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, well, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? Let's pray. Father, these are words from a faraway place, from the lives of people that we've never met. They didn't speak the same language, they didn't drive the same cars, didn't go to the same schools, but Lord, they already sound a lot like us. So Lord, you have preserved words of life for us to touch the places that we live today in our own lives. And we are familiar with struggles of quarreling and divisions among us in our lives. And so, Lord, there's truth here today that can radically affect those places in our lives. 
And in our hearts, we want you to go there. Lord, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this, as we've I started the last couple of weeks, maybe through this in your outline, I'm not sure or not, there was a particular quote that caught my attention from Ben Witherington about the place that we're learning about, this place of Corinth and why he's writing this letter. And he says, as we turn to detailed analysis of the letter, we pick up things midstream. Paul is in the midst of trying to create community and dissipate conflict in the Corinthian church. Paul is trying to create community. All right, is, that a, is that a peripheral issue? Right, I know for some people, Christianity, however it was served up to you, it fell into that realm of religion as this, this personal thing. It's about you and God. And, and so there was this need for it that you were going to encounter. You needed something from God. You came to God. What you believe is a private thing. Blah, 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 blah. But you know, the Bible is seriously concerned about the impact of coming to know Christ. The outplay of it. The divine purpose that God had in mind when he would have a people who would become walking billboards that advertise something about him and his character and his power. And that was going to take place from the moment you and I got saved until we go to be with Jesus. And while we do that, we do that in a place called a community. We do that not in isolation, not in your private moments, although it does involve that, but we do it in communion with others. There's a community dimension to being a Christian. All right, so stop for a second and just look around. Look around this room. You're all looking at me. Look around. (laughs) This, this is the community that God has called you to be a part of. And what we're going to read about today has got particular application here. Now probably what you also saw as you looked around were the person you were married to, probably. The family that lives in the same house with you or is part of an extended family. And there's aspects of what we're going to read about today and learn about today that apply there as well. Let me just clearly say from the get-go, everything we're going to read about does not apply to everybody in your life. The Bible's not written to humanity. Some people read the Bible so poorly because they don't realize it's written to a community that has a particular identity. So this is not an advice book for the human race. This is God communicating to his community who are called into the fellowship of his son. It's a different group of people. And so you need to know that as you try to put some of this stuff on. There is quarreling, Paul says, among you. And divisions among you. Alright, so before we make this a poor Corinthian message, is this, does this got to do with any of us today? Right now, if you just busted out your calendar, your life, observing who you're around, who you're not around, who you're struggling with, what's going well, is there any quarreling in your world? Is there any divisions that you are maintaining, that you are participating in, that you have erected some strong borders and boundaries? You just won't go there with that person. You got reasons, and they got reasons, and you're not going there with that person. All right, let's not just make this a Corinthian issue. The Corinthians are us, aren't they? And we need some help here as well. But, I, but we need to meet the Corinthians. I need to, and I'm, I'm, I've spent a bit of time doing this and I'm going to keep doing it because sometimes Corinthians, all that is to us is the heading on a bunch of words in this book called the Bible. The Corinthians were real people who lived in time and space. They had emotions and feelings. They lived in a culture, in a world They struggled. They had real life issues. So it it, it helps us to get to know them. Because when you get to know them, you're going to kind of walk away going, hey, wow, they kind of remind me of me in some ways. Or yeah, we've got some of those kind. They're human, right? So let's let's get some humanity in front of us. I want you to meet the Corinthians yet again. So it's a quick Reader's Digest version of who these folks are again is before we tackle their issue. All right, here's who they are. They are 
in Corinth, this city that's located in Greece on the Mediterranean Sea. But it, it, it's an odd, a little bit of an odd city because it's a, it's a Roman city. The city was completely destroyed and then rebuilt because the Romans saw a strategic purpose for it. And so the Romans not only rebuilt it, but they, they repopulated it as well with a lot of Roman people. But it's located in a portion of Greece, so you had a lot of Greek people there as well. And then you have these Jewish people who give us the scriptures and a revelation about the eternal God who created everything. And they're scattered in the land as well, and some of them live in this little town of Corinth. So you've got these ethnic groups that are all living in Corinth, Greeks, Romans, and Jews. And let me say it this way. Uh, that's their ethnicity, but, but that's also going to tap into their loyalties. That's a better word. Because when I say ethnic, you don't think too much about that. But if I ask you, what, what are you loyal to? Well, these guys would have come into the church being loyal to being a Roman. Or being loyal to to being a Greek or being loyal to being a Jew. And then they got around some other people who weren't from their team, their ethnic background, and that would create some challenges. But there's more going on here in Corinth as well. Corinth is a strategic location, right, where it was located. There's a lot of businesses to be started. There's entrepreneurship going on in that place. There's opportunity. This is the land of opportunity. And it's going to be populated by people who are looking for an opportunity. How do you know that that creates a certain kind of person who's going to be in that spot? Because they're there for a reason. They've got desires and they've got ambitions. They want some stuff. This is an idle rich setting. There's lots of temples in the town there. And there's lots of convictions about how life should be done in relation to those. This is a party and entertainment rich environment. There's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of entertainment that appeals to the pleasure orientedness of human beings. There's theater there. There's concerts. There's foodies. There's this Isthmian game thing, kind of like the Olympics that's there. All this creates a diversity of motivations and personal interests in other words there's there's ambitions in Corinth people want something I'm here for a reason I like particular things right so so you've got conflicting loyalties and competing ambitions all in the same room Can you imagine there might be some challenges? Here, let me give you a quick commentary on these guys. Roman military and civil officials resided in Corinth, together with a multitude of settlers who were ex-soldiers, freedmen, former slaves from Rome. They were also merchants, craftsmen, artists, philosophers, teachers, and laborers from many countries bordering the Mediterranean. Number of Jews from Israel and elsewhere, native Greeks, displaced persons and slaves. All these people lived and worked in Corinth. Business owners, blue-collar workers, thinkers and philosophers, artsy people. Did those two people tend to get along? Right? I mean, you got mathematicians who, who don't get artsy people at all, right? So if you guys have got a Bachelor of Science versus a Bachelor of Arts, you don't get each other, right? It just, if you did well in one of those categories, it's because your, your brain is developed backwards from the people who are, have the other version of that. So they're just natural challenges here. Craig Blomberg and his commentary says, In Paul's day, it was probably the wealthiest city in Greece and a major multicultural urban center. The massive hill overlooking the town housed on its summit a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And to house the, this temple housed the 1,000 cult prostitutes that the ancient Greek geographer Strabo claimed once worked there. Probably not true during this time period, but it was at one point. It is understandable how the Greek word meaning Corinthian girl came to be a slang for a loose woman. Corinth housed other religious shrines too, most notably a temple to Asclepius, the Greek god of healing, as well as sites for worshiping Isis, Egyptian goddess of seafarers, and her Greek male counterpart Poseidon. 
Corinth may have been one of the few predominantly middle-class churches of the ancient world. We must remember that middle class was still a far lower standard of living than we generally associate with that label today. And into that setting comes this particular verse that Paul wastes no time getting to. He is nine verses in and he's got to get on to talk about this defining element of this church. This church is having a hard time getting along. After reading all that, are you surprised? This is not some churchy, everybody ought to just smile and get along. This is a tough environment. These people just come from a different background. They don't get each other. And more than that, they offend each other. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. No divisions, right? This this is the center struggle. And I want to be careful here because it's not the only problem that they had. But, But what generates this problem generates all the other ones. And that's where I want to go today. This is not just a, hey, let's not be a church divided. No, how about today we understand why We gravitate towards hostility toward one another. Because that's all over the book. The particular teams that they picked of wanting to be Apollos or Paul or whoever, that's just a manifestation of what's going on on the inside. But there's something here that he calls divisions. This is the first thing Paul wants to get to. There's these divisions. And this word here, the Greek word for it is from where we get the word schisms. There were schisma among them. And it means to, to tear something, to rend it from one thing apart to the other, to tear it, split something. It's, a, it's where we get the word schizo as well, schizophrenia, right? Split personages, personalities. There's a splitting, a tearing in this word. And, and let me be careful here because the Bible doesn't use this word always as a ban. It doesn't always turn around and say, hey, hey, humanity, no schisms. Nobody being divided one from another. As a matter of fact, when Jesus used this word, he actually explained that you are going to be schismed. It's a fact. And he actually made it sound like a healthy fact. He said, you know, no one puts a new patch on an old garment, lest it schisms. It will will tear away from the new garment. He he was speaking that about the revelation of the, the kingdom of God that had come into this old religious setting. He said, you know, what I'm I'm doing in the new covenant is making a new people. And you can't just take new people and old people and and put a patch on it. It won't work. There's going to be a schism. So you're actually, as a new creation in Christ, you're supposed to be taken away from this group and over here. And then Jesus, actually in Luke chapter 12, he actually explained this. He said, do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather schism. I've come to bring division. He says, father's going to be divided against son and mother against daughter. Right, so this is not a, this is not a Coke commercial. This is not all, let's just hold hands, sing kumbaya, get along. Everybody in humanity, we're all just called to be one together, all of humanity. And you know, isn't it odd that the Bible, right? We think this is the most tender loving book going has an element in it that it does tell you that you are going to be torn away from another group you are going to become separated from it you are going to be schismed from a portion of humanity and that schismed group is who the bible is being written to god is speaking to this group among all of humanity. So, so please don't, don't get sloppy in a world today that is gone universalist. Where everybody's okay in their own way. It picks up the Bible and it loves these kind of ideas in it. But, because it doesn't read all of Corinthians. 
And remember we said, it just picks up the word love and says, hey, everybody just ought to love one another, okay? Well, there's a lot to learn about how humanity should treat each other. But the Bible recognizes if you're part of the body of Christ, it's because you're no longer in Adam. You were severed and torn away from that in order to be made another community. And that's what this verse goes on to. But you be united in the same mind and judgment, right? You, there's a bigger group and then there's a you group that God has made you a part of. Now you, he's speaking to, says with you, it's going to be different. It's not going to be like that other group. And the stuff that operates in that other group that creates quarrels and conflicts, that's not supposed to control you. That's not supposed to be your story. You're supposed to be in agreement. You're supposed to have the same mind. Now listen, be careful because the Bible's going to allow for a lot of variety. And if you study church history, you're going to find the, the church doesn't always do this well. And we create wrong divisions among ourselves based on cultural issues, based on generational issues, you know, based on our own label of that's godly and that's not. And, you know, on the other side of the world, that's flipped and we didn't even notice it because we're Americans and we just think everybody's American. But there is a dimension here that there are some things that we are called to agree on that override everything else. They're bigger than everything else in our lives. We are to be like-minded in those categories. We are to have the same convictions. Everything's not up for grabs. As an individual, I've got ideas and priorities in my life that I need to submit those to Christ. And when I submit them to Christ, and you've submitted yours to Christ, and you've submitted yours to Christ, we all come into agreement, don't we? Because it's no longer my idea that I'm trying to impose on you or your idea that you're trying to force on me. We've all submitted these ideas to Christ and we've walked away with his ideas. And that's what this unity is supposed to look like. It's these kinds of shared convictions. But here's the reality. Paul appeals for unity amidst the reality of division. And that's going to be the future of the church and the future of your attempts at community until you go to be with Jesus. An appeal for unity amidst the reality of division. Schism does exist. So let let me bring some clarity into that thought. First, unity, like our identity that we looked at in the first couple of weeks, exists from outside of us. It's granted to us It does not originate with us. Please be careful how the Bible makes this sound. It it, it is not deputizing humanity to go out and create unity. It's not telling you find a way. You guys find a way to come together. Man, you just gotta gotta work it out. Find something you can agree on. That's not what you're hearing said here. Right? There is a unity here that already exists. Because it was not created by us. It was graciously given to us, right? Jesus is praying about this unity in John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, just his immediate disciples that were with him, but for those who believe in me through their word, right? And that travels all the way down to us, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So Jesus knew that for there to be a unity characterizing this group of people, they couldn't create it. He would have to appeal to the Father to impart it to them. That's where it's got to come from. And and Jesus likens it to the unity that exists in the Godhead itself. So this cannot come from humanity. It it is a characteristic, it is a working of the character and nature of God. So this is not just all of us deciding to be Saints fans. This is a whole lot more complicated than that. And it's a whole lot more deep than that. And so Jesus is calling on something that's got to be from heaven. It's got to come from another kingdom. It cannot be a rally cry of human beings doing the best they can with all their fortitude and determination for us to get along with each other. It's bigger than that. And it's much more than that. It's got to be coming from God the Father. 
And now listen, that ne- this next line in that passage is, is sobering. Because if you and I started this meeting thinking, hey, I don't know if we're getting along with each other. I'm hey, a little quarreling. I don't know if I care that much about the people in this room, much less you know, striving together to, to, to build the kingdom. Okay, well, listen to this next verse. Jesus is praying for this unity so that the world may believe that you sent me. There, there is a living billboard dimension to the proclamation of the realness of God, the activity of God, the divine calling of God out to the world that is bound up and twisted together with how you and I do community. So if that is true, and the Bible holds out that it is true, then the way in which you and I do community, that's, that's not like a casual option issue in our lives, is it? I mean, you know, if you take an inventory right now, and I hope you're doing this, to see what, what's my life like in relation to the community that's in this room with me. How, how am I doing living toward them, connecting to them, allowing for diversity and differences, and making sure I don't run away from each other because I find you hard to be around. Instead, I'm, I'm running toward you in spite of those challenges because I see the gravity of this. I see our sense of community makes a statement to the world about God the Father having sent the Son to have a lasting impact upon those who believe in him. It matters a little bit how you and I do community. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says, I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to do what? To maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. All right, these are facts. There is this thing called the unity in the spirit that comes from the Godhead who is unified three in one. And then calls us into that, not to create it, but to maintain it, right? It already exists. Just like this next statement, verse 4. There is, there is, fact, there is. that You don't have to create this. You're not called to create it. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call. So we don't create this. It is imparted to us by God, this unity that builds our community. But from the outset, local churches struggle with, face difficulties with schisms. That's always been an issue, right? I mean, 1 Corinthians is is the fourth book in the New Testament. Galatians has got schisms in it. 1 and 2 Thessalonians would probably not be as schismatic as many other churches were. But the first in-depth look, because Paul's writing to the Thessalonians six months to a year after he's been with them. So that's a very young setting. There's, There's not a lot of data to work with just yet. The Corinthians have been several years. So they've been trying to be a community for a while. So we got some stuff there. And the Galatians are very divided in how they think. So there's something revealed in Scripture that, that you and I shouldn't be blown away when we find out that doing relationships can be tough. Even in the church. I can't tell you how many people come to me like, like they're going to introduce this shocking information to me over the years. And you know, this is almost like, you know, holding the pastors responsible for your church. Did you know the people in your church did? Like, <gasps> I almost want to break out other stuff and say, well, did you know they did this and this and this too? <laughs> I mean, if you only knew, you're just starting. That's the tip of the iceberg. Right? There's, there's, not, there's not a shock value in the New Testament that Christians are struggling with putting on Christ. It's addressed way too much. It it must be a challenge to do this. 
Or it wouldn't come up, right? We just never would see it. This would be the one book that has two paragraphs about it and the whole thing. It's a whole book devoted to dysfunction. Does that make you think this might be a little challenging to do? And and for those of you who want to run from it because it's challenging, uh, you got another thing to belong to in the universe somewhere? This is what we're called to. With all of its blemishes and difficulties. Second, beware. Division is, is in the fallen world as an ever-competing agenda. And as you and I move towards unity and move towards community, what moves with us is the DNA of dysfunction. It moves right with us. We go to take a step, it steps with us. It, it, is, it is ingrained in the human structure. And until you put on a glorified body, you're dragging it around with you in the one that you've got on right now. So just because you determine, you know, I'm going to look past these faults and these things that people have done to me. And I'm going to get involved in the church. And you get involved and it kicks you right in the teeth. That's it. I'm done. You know, I tried. Uh, hey, can, can you just recognize you're dragging your humanity with you? Into that, yes, I'm going to do what God called me to do. And so is everybody else along with you. That's interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 there. Look in verse 3 of chapter 3. Just saying, you know, I I couldn't teach you guys some things. Because you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Because when one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? Listen, the, the shock value in this verse is not that human beings have problems with jealousy and strife. That's not the shock value in this verse, right? You back up, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So the natural frame of a fallen world, when, when the world fell into the grips of sin and it no longer walked in purity with God, all kinds of DNA stuff got twisted and messed up. So that now when I go to do human being life with other people, I, I've got jealousy and strife going on inside of me. Until I go to be with Jesus, that's still going to be there. So the shock value from Paul, Paul's not like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine that there's actually jealousy or strife. No, the shock value for him is that the Spirit hasn't conquered that in the community of God's people. That's what he's like, you know, by now, I would have thought there'd be a little deeper work of the Spirit here. I could teach some other things to you, but I have to keep going back to the same stuff. That's where he's shocked at. But listen, do not be shocked that your humanity sticks out sometimes. And that you bump into other people's humanity. And then you get on the receiving end of jealousy and strife in the community that God's called you to be a part of. All right, let, me, let me give us a, a, a quick worldwide view of schisms. Right? Ponder the world of schisms with me just for a moment. And these are, these are all over our news, man. The ones I've put in your outline there, they are everyday news items. They, I think it's worse than ever. Not because it is worse than ever, just because our world has created an ability to publish it all. Right? You get news feeds. I got a news feed this week. I'm sure you probably heard about the Jewish lawyer in New York who ranted on people who worked in a restaurant who spoke Spanish. And he ranted on them. And just trash them because they're, this is America and you ought to speak English. And just, just full of vim and bigger, vinegar, I guess my mom used to say. Just ugly stuff, right? But what's curious for me is why, I'm in New Orleans, why am I hearing about this? Why do I need to be told this? Uh, and, and it really doesn't help anybody, does it? Right? It just awakened in me a sense of distaste for what this person would do. And so no matter which side of the issue you're on, you're just awakened. You're just hacked off. You're hacked off if you like people who speak Spanish. You're hacked off if you don't like them. Right? And, and by the way, that's why they sent it to you. They're in business to get you to read their stuff. 
know, if they send you the, you know, the Three Little Bears poem, I don't think you're reading it. And they lived happily ever after and got along forever. You know, you don't even open that sucker. But let some attorney rant. Uh, you know, oh, I've got to see this. Uh, really? I'm not sure this is helping us. But there are schisms everywhere, right? There are racial schisms in our world today. And, and be careful when I use racial schism because we're Americans, you, we run to what that means for us as Americans. Can, can I just tell you that there has been racial, ethnic, subgroup schisms throughout human history, that, that we're not breaking any new ground as Americans in this category, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. We, we happen to be a melting pot that's putting different people together, but how many of you know you don't have to be of a different race to really not be liked by someone in your own race? You, have you kept up with, your, with uh, history? I'm going to put this, I don't think you have this quote, but you may have it up here. A fellow who wrote a book about Stalin. Stalin killed millions. And a Stanford historian answers this question, was it genocide? Listen to the verbiage here about Joseph Stalin killing his own people. These were not racially different people than himself. They were of his race. The author argues that the Soviet elimination of a social class, the kulaks, who were a higher income farmers, and the subsequent killer famine among all the Ukrainian peasants who weren't even cared about, as well as a notorious 1937 order number 447 that called for the mass execution and exile of socially harmful elements. They get the same bloodline as we got, but they're socially harmful people who need to be eliminated as enemies of the people was in fact, he says, genocide. Stalin had nearly a million of his own citizens executed beginning in the 1930s. Millions more fell victim to forced labor, deportation, famine, massacres, and detention and interrogation by Stalin's henchmen. 30,000 kulaks were killed directly, mostly shot on the spot. About 2 million were forcibly deported to the far north in Siberia. They were called, quote, enemies of the people, as well as swine, Dogs, cockroaches, scum, vermin, filth, garbage, half animals, apes. And have you studied anything about racism? You recognize any of those words? Apparently, when you, when you just go to hate another set of human beings, there's not a lot of vocabulary available. Because that tends to be the same set of words others have used. Activists promoted murderous slogans. We will exile the kulak by the thousand when necessary. Shoot the kulak breed. If you visit the world landscape in this area, you don't have to be of a different race to be hated by one another. In Africa, the Rwandan genocide, also known as the genocide against the Tutsi, was a genocidal mass slaughter of Tutsi in Rwanda by members of the Hutu majority government. Same race. An estimated 500,000 to a million Rwandans were killed during the 100-day period from the 7th of April to mid-July 1994. 1994. These aren't ancient situations. Oz Guinness in his book Unspeakable says Cambodia's Pol Pot. So now we venture over to Asia. We're not in America. We're not in Africa. We're in Asia now. Cambodia's Pol Pot slaughtered two million people, a quarter of his nation's population, his own people. Stalin murdered 30 million, Mao 65 million, the three or more, three or four million victims of the current civil war in the Congo. We're not the only people with ethnic and racial and subgroup problems on the earth. And the history of the world, there's something in the DNA of humanity that's going in this direction. And when you come into the church, guess what? That doesn't fall off of you when you walk through the door. When you get married, it doesn't fall off of you either. When you go to build community with another person who may not have these differences, but they got some kind of difference. Right, here's some schisms all around us. Gender schism has found new heights in our world. Feminism versus misogynism. Gender comparison and competition. 
gender privilege and gender inequality is in the news constantly. Antagonism, hostility, sides to be taken, opinions to have about these issues. Power, authority, and control schisms. We tend to pay a lot of attention to race schisms. Can I, if I had to make a case for schisms, I'd say that one is number one. Power, authority, and control schisms. One group finding a way to have control over another group. You don't have to be a different color, different race, different ethnicity. I just need to find an advantage over you to advance my purpose. That has happened all over the world. Belief and ideology schism. Uh, if, you, if you followed along in the Middle East challenges, one of the things that's, that's been an interesting fumble to watch is to watch America think that if you could just export democracy to the Middle East, you could fix their situation because their real situation is dictatorships. So if we could take the ideology of democracy and convince these dictatorship people to go with that, we'd fix the Middle East. How many of you know your democracy doesn't fix the issues between the Shiites and the Sunnis? They have a difference of belief. They have a difference of ideology. They are at war over what they think one should believe. And you can give them a democratic government or you can give them a dictatorship and they will still go to war with each other over that issue. Language, schisms, welcome to New York. Personality or temperament schisms, welcome to Lakeview. Baby boomer millennial schisms. Welcome to the planet. <laughs> these, are, these, are, these are real differences. And, and, and they get in us and we don't pay attention to it. Right, so these are, the, these are the loyalty issues that can come up in you. So if I raise that question for you, you know, what, what are you loyal to that drives how you relate to people? What are you, what are you loyal to? If you're more loyal to your gender than you are to the king of glory and his agenda to advance his kingdom upon the earth for the glory of God, if you are more loyal to your gender and you won't be able to unify and come together with others unless they have the same opinion that you have about gender inequalities in this world today, well, then the church will turn into Corinth and we will be just like them. The groups won't be called Apollos and Cephas, etc. But they'll find their little corners and we'll gather in them. And if, if you are more loyal to your race, you grew up a certain way, your bloodline comes from a certain part of the world and you are loyal to that, and you listen for how people interact with that subject. That's how you and I are going to get on the same page. I want to know, are you, a, are you a Black Lives Matter guy or not? Do you believe in white privilege or not? Do you, do you rise up against that when somebody says white privilege because you're white and you don't like the way that sounds? And I don't, like the way, I don't like the way it sounds on what side of the issue you sound like you're on when you say that. Because the world is teaching us these are the things you unify around. And if you do, welcome to Corinth. We'll have the same problem that they have. There, there is a predominance in our country today of uh, generational loyalty. Primarily, I had this conversation with somebody who's in Gen Z. I don't know if you guys even know where Gen Z is because they're just kind of quietly getting along in between the two noisemakers. The baby boomer generation and the millennials. And there is this war. And, and you know, quite honestly, I'm a baby boomer. I'm the last year of the baby boomers. So the, the baby boomers deserve what they get. Because if you travel back into the 60s, the baby boomers were obnoxious to the generation before them. So whatever the millennials do, baby boomers, we deserve it. Uh, but there is this war, a clash of ideas and vocabulary and approaches to life and how you do things. And there's a sense that churches now, I'm telling you, we're an odd church and I thank God for it. But you go visit a lot of churches and they're either all baby boomers 
and you're wondering when a few more of them die, who's going to close the door? (laughs) Or they're all millennials and they all speak the same language, raise their kids exactly the same way, spend their money exactly the same way. And then like the person who goes to that church who's 43 and says, I'm the oldest person in the church. And you're going to go, oh my gosh, (laughs) someone, someone lock those doors and keep them inside. (laughs) And there's this generational dysfunction between these entities. Okay, then I wrote this in your outline. Warning, warning. This appeal that Paul gives to the church, I appeal to you brothers, is not to be contingent on whether we can agree on conservative and liberal politics, on white privilege and Black Lives Matter, on hashtag me too, on gender equality and inequality, on generational unity, etc. That is not what Paul is appealing to. What he's appealing to is what he just said a few minutes earlier, that we have been called into the fellowship of his son. And whether you see eye to eye on black and white issues, on haves and haves not issues, on gender issues, those all take a far back seat to this issue that is much more important. And it is the basis for our unity and our ability to be so different and yet come together and be one. That's the issue that he's trying to address. John Piper, his latest book, says this. This is, this, I'm going to come back to this quote. I don't have time to unpack it fully. He says, when human beings with diverse ethnicities, backgrounds, tastes, expectations, desires, priorities, peeves, right? Peeves, stuff that just gets under your skin. Admirations and needs join their hearts and minds and voices and actions in unified worship of the one true God through Jesus Christ. A reality has come into the world that is beautifully fitting because only God could take humanity and all of its dysfunction and bring us together that way. And it says something about him. But I, I just don't want to tell you about the dysfunction that's there. I'm going to take a few minutes here to, to unpack the, the nuts and bolts of schism. Why is this an issue? Why do we, why do we have problems in this area? What, what is on the inside of us that makes schism and division feel like that's, the, the, that's how I've got to respond to this situation? Because here, what we're not trying to do here is to study the Corinthians so that we can all walk away today and go, man, those Corinthians were messed up. They were worse than I thought. You know, I mean, I'd read that before, but I never knew that. Uh, I want to know why I have a hard time wanting to be around you. And why you have a hard time wanting to be around me. All right, well, here's the nuts and bolts. Just a few thoughts. I mean, I'm sure if I thought about this longer, we'd be here until lunch or dinner. A couple of thoughts, though. Schism thrives where there's unfamiliarity. When I'm called upon to be in the presence of, to build with, to relate to people that I'm I'm unfamiliar with you. See, familiarity does something, right? We build our worlds out of familiarity. Nobody wants to do something different every day. It, it, It would drive you nuts. Because familiarity, it creates a certain level of predictability about life. And, and we sort of like predictability. We, we can find shelter in predictability because I, I know what's going to happen next. I, I don't like every moment feeling like, who, what's that going to, who, who's he going to do? Ah, I don't even know them. Should I trust them? I left my wallet on the table. I think that's okay. You know, I don't like living like that. We like things to be predictable. And when they're not predictable, we, we start to feel vulnerable. So we, we get around people that are different than us and that we're unfamiliar with them. We can't figure out what makes them tick. We don't get their particular convictions. And we feel vulnerable. And, and when you feel vulnerable, you, you feel insecure. And when you're insecure, you, you do weird stuff. You know, fight and flight. That's what we do when we get in the presence of, of fear. We either fight or we run from it. And that can be how we're doing community, right? If I get around something I'm unfamiliar with, I'm either going to fight it, I'm going to attack it. That's the first thing I know to do. Or if my personality is different, then I'll just avoid it. 
I'll just run from it. And, and you know, listen, there's people in the church, that's their MO. They either attack something that's different from them or run from it. And we're trying to do community with each other. How about things that are unnatural? Schism thrives where things are unnatural to us, right? Every one of us came into this world with, with, you know, sort of being dealt a certain genetic code, if you will, personality elements. There are things that are just natural to us. They sit in our sweet spot. We get that stuff, right? Most obvious one is, you know, there's probably almost no one here who's ambidextrous. You either are right-handed or left-handed, and there's only a few of you that are left-handed, right? So most of us get this, right? Just... And, you know, my natural tendency is to do stuff with my right hand. And to get me to do it with my left hand, there's a lot of stuff that we just don't ever want to go through the difficulty that it takes to do it with the hand that, that is unnatural for us. Right? I, mean, I grew up playing basketball, and I remember early on coaches just trying to get basketball players who were right-handed to do a left-handed layup. Everything is different. It's all opposite, right? Your instinct is, you know, you jump off the left foot with the right hand, and then they go to the other side, and how many guys just look like you, you should give up on basketball? Uh, they, they jump off the wrong foot and shoot with the wrong hand over the goal. I mean, so like you do that about 10 times, and when the coach isn't looking, you just do it with your right hand. <laughs> you know, you just, oh, wrong side of the goal, but you shot it with your right hand. There's stuff in us that when we go to do it, it just comes easy for us. And then there's stuff in us that it's just hard to do. Right? There, there's a few people that have got strange natural abilities. You know, the guy can sit down with a piano and within five minutes he can play, you know, some crazy uh, Bach movement or something. But for the most of us, it is grueling, slow pull my fingernails out of my fingers to learn a musical instrument, right? The training of it, it's like your mind is disconnected from your body and it's willing things that your fingers are saying, nope, not doing that. Nope, not today. I don't even know how to do that. I've never done that before. I'm not comfortable doing that. It's like, play it. You You just can't. And you do it over and over and over and over. And finally, somebody gets good at it and you think, oh, oh, that's easy for you. Uh, probably not. It was probably miserable for years until it became that. But, but let's be honest. Most of us don't want to do miserable. So what happens when you, you go to do community and you get around people that sort of require you to use your left hand? If you're going to be around them, you're going to have to do it left-handed because that's just kind of who they are. That's at the pace that they move. That's the way they think. That's what their personality is like. I don't want to do it left-handed. So I guess I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to be around you. And you know, unfortunately, that, that makes sense in our enchanted world. Right? I mean, one of the things we talked about at the beginning of the year. There is a philosophy stuck down inside of us that personal, personal, me, all about me, my way, personal human flourishing feels right to me now. It feels like that's how the world should feel. It, it, should, it should reward me the way I am, and I'm right-handed. So if, if it doesn't do that, then there's something wrong with it, and it's just not for me. And then you go and marry a left-handed person. Which, isn't it funny how most of us do? You marry somebody who's just significantly different from you. And the war is on. (laughs) Well, you know, it must be that God is up to something in those categories. But just be aware, schisms flourish where things are unnatural to us. Schisms flourish when things are different in terms of your upbringing. You were just raised a certain way. You were taught to value certain things. The applause went in a certain direction. As you were raised and as you grew up. And so you learn to value certain things and to devalue other things. If you had a conversation with my boys, uh, they probably couldn't tell you uh, not only not who's in the possible pennant chase this year, but I don't even know if they could tell you what teams are in the American League versus the National League because they grew up with a dad who had no room or care for baseball. 
I loved football, I loved basketball, and how strange that my older boys are football fans and they are basketball fans and I don't know if I've ever watched them watch a baseball game ever in their life. Where'd they get that? So if your passion is baseball, and for some reason you love the Brewers, you know who you are. If your passion is baseball, uh, I hope you're not looking for my boys to stand around and applaud anything that you're excited about. They're not going to get all jazzed. Ooh, the Brewers are in first place. Brewers, what what is that? Like a brewery? That's like, it's like like Miller versus Budweiser. What is that? You know, they don't get it. And so sometimes we, you know, again, we've got these limitations. You grew up in those limitations, right? Maybe a, you went off and did something was was the bowling alley. And then you marry somebody when they went off and did something that was the country club. All right, you guys have fun, right? That's going to be a real different experience, right? If for you going to a concert involves a mosh pit versus an orchestra pit, you know, you're going to have your challenges when you go to come together. It's just because you were raised differently. So community can be a little bit of a challenge. Here's a much more serious issue. Self-interest and self-exaltation is a great challenge. We struggle with an agenda for our own greatness. So we, we tend to want things to be arranged around what benefits us. Our skill set, our temperament, our personal categories of enjoyment, or safety, or comfort. That's, a, that's such an innocent one, isn't it? Comfort, safety. You know, sometimes getting around somebody, groups, being married to somebody who's just very different, it doesn't feel safe. You don't feel safe, do you? You feel vulnerable. This person's risky. Who knows what they'll do? I'm not comfortable with that. Right? That can be a schism issue. Okay, here's the reality. You and I live in a world that is caught in this this dysfunction, this spiritual entropy, this increase of disorder. And and the, the footnote on humanity over and over and over again from the Garden of Eden on, right? In the Garden of Eden, everything was in harmony with one another. There was great unity. Every part played its part, and it played its part in a way that supported and interacted with others. And then sin intruded into that environment. And from that day on, there was no harmony and unity anymore. If there ever was going to be harmony or unity, it would have to come from the outside. It would not be generated by man. It would have to be God injecting it into humanity. So so be careful. The unity that Paul is appealing to and that he's calling churches to is not a unity that you and I can create because we found the same things to like. Right? I'm sure that there was a moment, just like when we won the Super Bowl, when the Philadelphia Eagles for the first time won the Super Bowl, there was a flash of unity in Philadelphia. But last thing I've heard is the crime still exists there. It didn't fix everything, did it? When we won the Super Bowl here, didn't matter what color you were, didn't matter anything, right? You could talk to anybody, you could celebrate it all together, didn't matter, right? It didn't fix us though, did it? We're still shooting each other, hating each other, saying the wrong things about each other. Listen, because that's not the kind of unity that Paul is appealing to. If you're looking for that kind of unity, you're going to try and find people who think gender-wise the same way you do, race-wise the same way you do. You're, You're looking in the wrong places for the wrong thing. The unity that Paul is appealing to is a unity that comes from the Godhead who exists in perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together to be imparted to a race that's fallen and struggles in this very category. It's got to come from God. Listen to this from Philippians chapter 2. And listen for two things here. Listen for what we've already heard in Corinthians. Listen for identity and source. Where is this going to come from? And listen to response because that's what Paul's calling for as well. Philippians 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, all right, here's here's the do point. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in one spirit, intent on one purpose. Do 
nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Where, where? It just doesn't come natural for me. Where's this going to come from? Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ. Where are you going to get it from? Not from you. You're going to have to get it from him. Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. There was no competition in the Godhead. There was no jealousy or strife. Jesus didn't respond to the Father's selfish idea. You go help him. I'm not going to help him. You go help him. I'm not dressing up like a human that's so beneath me. I'm not going to do it. They're going to reject me and spit on me and nail me to a cross. Let the Spirit do it. I mean, this is not the conversation in the Godhead. There was perfect unity and harmony and, and the ability to look away from oneself. That's what is here in this verse. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's got to come to us. This isn't a pep rally. This isn't a, hey, all you humanists, we've got cases of Cokes available. Let's all go stand on the front lawn together. No, no, no. We, we need God's character and life to pull this sort of thing off. The one who laid down his place in the Godhead and took the form of a man because he put others' interests ahead of his own at incredible cost in the most unattractive setting possible. That one is the source of this love and this unity and this relating that we share with one another. That was a struggle for the Corinthians. And we're going to find out as we move through the first chapter how Paul directed their attention. He's going to direct it here the same way he does it to the Philippians. But here's here's the last point there in your outline. Summary. These forces, right? These things that cause schisms to be so prevalent and tendencies are at work in human nature. And they travel from race to race. From culture to culture, from generation to generation, from feminism to misogyny. As long as we are vulnerable to fear and ambition, which all of us are, these things will need to be, listen, managed. They will not be cured. You know what cures them? A new body. And a non-sin-infected glorious world that is yet to come so you and I will never live in an environment where these things don't exist and trouble us the unity must be imparted to us from the triune God to be tasted in this age and then fully realized in the age to come so let's adjust our expectations appropriately if you and I are going to do community these issues are going to be among us. And so let, let, me, let me ask you to, to be prepared to, to respond this, this morning. This passage is a passage directed to the church. Pretty deep level of commitment and relationship being described here. For those who just go to church together. It's much more than that, isn't it? This is not a passage directed to the world. This is not a call for humanity to do these things. This is a call for the church to do these things. And the ingredients necessary are supernatural. So that there's got to be a source in this community from the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have to be at work to generate this. 
So it cannot be done by those who are not regenerated. It cannot be done by those who are outside of Christ. But let me transfer this to one other location besides the church. Because if the ingredients of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are present, then this sort of community is available in marriages, in families, where the Holy Spirit is at work imparting to us from the Father and the Son This is doable. So how how are we doing in that category? Are there quarrels and fights among you? You you want to deal with any of those this morning? Or you want to keep them in your pocket and take them with you? What's, what's got to happen for the areas of conflict and division that exist in your life to become important enough for you to say, I'm, I'm going to get in agreement with God? To, if you will, stop acting in a mere human way. I get that you can't turn your humanity down to zero, but the fact that Paul says, hey, there's more than being a mere human available to you. Are are you willing this morning to let God radically change the way you're relating and dealing with divisions and quarrels that are in your life? You, not waiting for somebody else to do it, you, ready this morning to listen to what God says here and the appeal that is in the voice of the apostle to let God move in this area of our lives. Let's stand up together and see if we can ask the Lord to help us.